in between that time of transition, a period of about 50 days, uh, from the time that Jesus ascended back to his father and the time that his earthly work would be handed over to his followers, the disciples, and they would take on the responsibility of going out into the world and representing Jesus Christ and his kingdom to the world. And a lot needed to happen in that short period of time. First, that needed to happen is just simply they needed to be reassured in order to believe again. They had believed that Jesus was uh, the Messiah, but when they saw him die on the cross, that caused some doubt to creep in their mind because a, a crucified Messiah did not enter into their thinking. So that's one of the things that we see very early on, Jesus coming and, and uh, getting in touch again with the disciples, letting them know that he's alive from the dead, he is risen. They needed to be reminded of their commitment to follow him. They had committed when Jesus first called them. The disciples said, Lord, we left everything in order to come follow you and be your disciples. And we see Jesus reminding them of that commitment and they're renewing uh, their commitment to follow him. They needed to be retaught in order to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. While Jesus was on his earthly ministry, he had spoken to his disciples and told them, if anyone would be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. And if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. But they didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about until later. And we see it in the story of Jesus walking with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road after his, uh, his resurrection. And uh, they said to Jesus, we, we thought that this one who died was going to be the Messiah and, and uh, now he's dead and we don't understand. And Jesus spoke to them and said, O fools, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And Jesus went back and reminded them of all of the things that he had taught them about himself from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets. And they saw it in a new light, in a new way. And they had learned that it was okay, it was safe to embrace the cross. They needed to reconnect in order to learn to love each other. This is what we spoke about just last week, that Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. And I happen to believe that a lot of what took place in the period of time following the ascension of Christ and uh, the, the time that uh, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, a lot of what was happening is the disciples simply spending that time together in the upper room. And when it says in Acts chapter 1 that they were in the upper room all in one accord, how long do you suppose it takes for a group of people to be in one accord. Uh, Sister Linda mentioned in her, in her testimony about know, having known, having heard about churches that fight amongst each other. And uh, God help us. 
Um, it takes a while of relating to one another and spending time together to come to the point where we are in one accord, where we are united. And this is one of the things that the disciples needed to do. They needed to learn to love each other. This morning, I want to talk to you for a little while about the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ. And I don't know that I've ever preached a message before about the ascension. You know, after all, you look at the story, we find it in Acts chapter 1. Uh, you're welcome to turn there if you have your Bibles or your, your device, whatever you use uh, to access the Word of God, Acts chapter 1. There doesn't seem to be much to tell, uh, but there is some great significance and meaning behind the ascension, the fact that Jesus in His bodily form rose from this earth and ascended back to the Father. Let's read these verses, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, follow along with me. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's bow our hearts for one more word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We ask that you will open our hearts and minds to hear and understand and receive what you want to say to us today. Father, I pray that you will give me the help that I need. Lord, may what is accomplished here today go beyond the power of human speech and influence. But Lord, may it be something through the power and influence of your Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you can go with me in your imagination to this day. We began the last couple of weeks of talking about this idea of being unprepared. And, and that's kind of the whole point of preaching this series about going from the empty tomb to the upper room. And that there was just a short period of time in which for the disciples to really grasp what Jesus and his kingdom were all about, and then take that message out into the world. They are with Jesus on the mountaintop, speaking to him, and they come to him with one of their questions, one of their concerns. You see, they still don't quite get what Jesus had said to Pilate before his death. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, or else my servants would fight for me on my behalf. But that's not the kind of kingdom I came to establish. That's still kind of what the disciples are thinking, that it's going to be an earthly kingdom. And so they're together, they're on the mountaintop, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, now that we understand the, you know, the whole death, the crucifixion thing, we see that that was just temporary, you're alive again from the dead, and, 
and now that kind of makes more sense. You've, you've won the victory over death, and so maybe this would be a good time to restore the kingdom. And uh, Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. <clears throat> I don't want to... Um, uh, step on anybody's uh, hobby horse or, or favorite uh, uh, topic, but let me just pause here for a moment and say I don't have uh, a whole lot of time for people who dig really deep into prophecy and end time events and, and, and try to figure out, um, let me make sure you know what I'm saying, I believe in prophecy. I believe in the Word of God. But we have people who in the past have tried to do exactly what Jesus said not to do. When I was a boy of about 10 years old, <clears throat> there was a book written that some of you will remember, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. Some of you remember that book? Yeah, see your hands shaking. And I remember as a young boy that people were really, people were stirred up about that. And they thought that guy that had written that book really had some, uh, you know, some worthwhile things to say. And he had narrowed it down to, to uh, one of two days, if I remember correctly. He said there's going to be maybe a day, could be one day in September or maybe one day in October. And those were, it was going to be one of those days that he believed Jesus was going to come back. And here we are, 2023, and Jesus has not yet returned. Doesn't mean he's not going to come back. I still believe he's going to come back. He's going to keep his promise. Just as he came the first time, he's going to come again the second time. But it is not for us to spend our time wondering and speculating and trying to figure out all of the hidden clues and secrets in Scripture. By the way, what's really important for us to know from Scripture is not hidden in symbolism and secret clues. It's clear for us to see and understand. And Jesus told the disciples then, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has put under his own control, but you shall receive power. Go back to Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses to all the world. And the scripture says in verse 9 of Acts 1, when he had said these things as they were looking on, while he was looking, while they were gazing into heaven, he began to rise and a cloud received him out of their sight. Would you have been prepared for that? You're this one that you have pinned all your hopes on and all your belief in and you lost him once through crucifixion, and then you've gotten him back through resurrection. And now you find that it seems you're losing him again. He's going back into heaven. I don't think any of them were really prepared for what they were seeing. The scripture seems to indicate that they were left there gazing, staring, slack-jawed into heaven. And it required two angels to remind them of what Jesus had said. Two men in white stood with them and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing here into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, will come again in the same way. And now in the meantime, you go back 
into Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father. When we think about the ascension, I think one of the first questions that ought to come to our mind is simply this. Where did Jesus go? And maybe where is he now? When we think about the heavens and the earth, I assume that most of us think uh, especially when we, when we connect this to our, our spiritual understanding and the things we read in the Bible, and, and maybe we connect it to people that we have loved and lost, people that have gone on and they've passed on ahead of us. We think about the heavens and the earth, and then we read stories like this about how Jesus ascended into heaven. And we may think of heaven as somewhere distant, somewhere far away, When the Bible in Acts chapter 1 here tells us that Jesus ascended back to the Father, how long do you suppose it took him to get there? Do you suppose it took him longer than it would take you and I to get, say, from here to Tulsa? That's about, what, an hour and a half drive, something like that? Well, when we study the Scriptures we find something interesting. You're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the ancient Hebrew writers, when they talked uh, about geographic locations, physical locations, or spatial relationships uh, in in the physical realm. They used these physical words, but they did not mean them in the same sense that we in our modern English sense mean these words. When we say things like the heavens and the earth, we may think of something, you know, the heavens being that's somewhere far away where God is and we're stuck down here on earth. But the Hebrew writers, they didn't mean it quite in those terms. They meant something more simple. The heavens was simply something like God's space. And the earth was man's space. So in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we read about the creation uh, account. We read about God creating Adam and Eve and placing them in the garden, a garden of Eden. In Ezekiel 28, 14, I'm getting ahead of myself. In Ezekiel 28, 14, we read that, that the garden of Eden was on a mountaintop. And whether or not that means a physical mountaintop, or simply a a figurative mountaintop, that that's where Adam and Eve would go to walk with God. That's the main thing that we're getting at. And the heavens refer to God's space, the earth to human space. And then there was to be an overlap. You see, God's intention in creation was never to have his space separate from our space, but rather that God's space and human space would overlap and that humanity and divinity would dwell together, would live together in one shared location. 
both physically and spiritually. And that's what we read about in the book of Genesis when it says that Adam and Eve walked and talked together with God in the Garden of Eden. They were enjoying that kind of relationship with God where they had shared space. However, as the story in uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, as we read in Genesis chapter 3 about the fall of humanity and sin, we see that Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden and they are separated from this life shared with God. No longer being able to live in this this overlapping space of human space and God's space. You understand when I I use the word space here, I'm not talking about like space out there. I'm talking about this is my space, okay? All right, I just want to make sure my, (laughs) I want to make sure my, uh, uh, my, my grammar be correctly, okay? Um, So what God is doing is providing a way for himself and for humanity to live together in a shared location, in a, in, a, in a shared space. But the fall of man caused that space to come apart, to be separated. And now there is a, a gulf between. The Bible is the account, the whole of the Bible is the account of what God is doing and what God has done to again allow divinity and humanity to come together and share the same space, to live together in relationship. And Jesus Christ is the first of a new kind of human. Quoting from an article in the Bible Project, the resurrected Jesus is truly a physical human being. We see in the story of his appearance before his disciples after his resurrection that his scars were in place, that he ate real physical food. He was a real physical human being, but obviously a different kind of human being after his resurrection. He had a glorified body. We see him appearing in uh, in. Uh, rooms with closed and locked doors. Uh, We see him uh, with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that we mentioned a few moments ago and how they were eating a meal together and suddenly he vanished from their sight. Yes, he was a physical human, but with a different kind of a body. And the scripture says that he is the firstborn of new creation, living after resurrection. And we as Christians are invited into that same kind of life, to live in that same kind of way. And he promises us that one day we too will be in a body just like his, a physical yet a glorified body. And now Jesus, as the first of a new kind of human, he exists permanently in both God's space and human's space. Adam and Eve experienced this kind of overlapping togetherness when, uh, before they sinned in the Garden of Eden, but only in part. But Jesus now experiences it fully. He exists both in, uh, in God's space and in human space, and uh, he is uniting heaven and earth in himself. 
Jesus is that new humanity that we are now invited and called to become. So Jesus, if we think about where he went and how long it took him to get there, Jesus did not go somewhere far away, somewhere distant. And you might wonder, Pastor, are you saying that Jesus did not physically appear to ascend? I I do believe that he physically appeared to ascend. That's, That's what the disciples saw. But not ascending and going somewhere far away through space and into another galaxy somewhere distant, but simply stepping from one kind of reality into another kind of reality where he's not visible any longer in human space or time, but he dwells in the spiritual dimension, in his physical glorified form. And now he makes himself real to us in our physical dimension through his Holy Spirit. Well, if Jesus went to be with the Father to dwell in a spiritual dimension, what is Jesus doing there? What is Jesus doing there? The first thing that we see from Scripture, I believe he is doing there, is he is reigning, meaning He's in charge. He's ruling. He is seated at the right hand of his Father, at the place of favor. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, we read these words. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, listen now to verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his, which is his body." Friends, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He dwells now in God's space, in the spiritual dimension, and he is reigning there. He is in control. He's in charge. We may look around at the world that we live in and wonder who's really in control. And friends, we can remember it is only in this dimension that God has temporarily allowed his will not to be done. It's only on this planet, only in this world, that God has temporarily allowed people to disobey him and step out of his will. And that's only because of his love that he wants people to come to him freely and receive his love. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read again, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. 
Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And friends, that's what is happening right now. Is Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the work of his church in this world, is reigning. That he is bringing all things into submission and into subjection to himself. And he will continue to reign until every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is reigning. He is also representing. He is representing. I like this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and tested like we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God, He is there reigning, but He is also representing. He is our representative before the Father. And when we come to God in prayer, we can come freely, we can come boldly, knowing that Jesus is there interceding and pleading on our behalf. We read again in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, these words. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is he, what is he saying there? You'd, you'd have to remember and understand something about the sacrificial system of worship and the priestly uh, system in the Old Testament. But there in, uh, in, in that system, the way the Jews worshiped, their high priest could only go into the, what they considered the actual presence of God in the Holy of Holies through the curtain, through the veil, that is the veil that separated the, the inner holy place from the outer holy place, could only go one time a year And when he went, he had to take uh, the blood of a sacrificial lamb with him. But friends, Christ has entered through that veil and dwells eternally in the Father's presence on our behalf. We don't wait to go only once a year, but we have free and full access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting and appropriate that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And friends, Jesus Christ, God's son, is our representative at the right hand of the Father and represents us. Not only is he reigning and representing, but he is also regulating. Sometimes my alliteration is, is, it causes me to stretch a little bit. He's regulating. What does that mean? He is regulating. Well, friends, he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 that we read to you a few moments ago mentions this that uh, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> we read these words. And he is the head of the body, the church. So when you think about Jesus as the head of the body, the head of the church, what does this mean? Let me try to quickly give you an illustration. Wow, have I been going that long already? Keep going? All right. Stephen Hawking, you may know, was a brilliant man and scientist. And there was never anything wrong with Stephen Hawking's brain. But Stephen Hawking suffered from what we know as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a disease in which there is a deterioration of the nerves in the body so that the messages from the brain are not communicated through the nervous system to the rest of the body. So Stephen Hawking had a good head on his shoulders. He had a good brain. But because of his disease, his body did not work the way it was supposed to. Friends, Jesus Christ is our head. He is the one who is to be the regulator of the church. And sometimes I wonder if our Father in heaven and Jesus our Savior is not sometimes frustrated like Stephen Hawking must have often been. Because he wanted to do things and say things in the world, but he found himself unable to because of his disease. I wonder how many times the head of the church is sending messages, but those messages aren't getting through. Friends, we are the body and we are to follow the one who is our head. Let me move quickly. You can take note of these scripture references if you want to. I'm not going to read them all. He is also reconciling. He is reconciling. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You remember when we said earlier that when man sinned, God's space and human space that were intended to be overlapping and living together and inhabiting that space together was separated because of sin. 
sin. But friends, it's through Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross that we are now able to enter again into God's presence and dwell together in the spiritual dimension with him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me move quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. We read these words, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. So where did Jesus go? He didn't go far away. He just is now in an unseen dimension, but he is co-inhabiting the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. There he is reigning and ruling on high. Uh, He is representing us before the Father. He serves as the head of the church and is working to reconcile the world to himself. So now what? Now what? We are called to be ambassadors. We, the church, are called to serve, first of all, as his body. We serve Christ as his body in the world. He has no hands but our hands. He has no feet but our feet. And we are called to be his witnesses. We serve each other as family. We serve each other as family. And again, as I already mentioned, we serve the world as ambassadors. You see, friends, God's intention has never been that God would dwell somewhere far away and we would be in our own space, our own human space, and God's in a spiritual dimension, and God is watching us from a distance. If you were, if you were alive in the 80s, uh, you may remember a pop song that was played too much on the radio. God is watching us from a distance. No, God is not watching us from a distance. God is as close as the mention of his name. He is near. He is imminent. He is impossible to get away from. And he wants to manifest himself to us and to you. And Jesus Christ came as the first fruits, that is the first of a new kind of human that lives permanently in both spaces in order to again bring human space and God's space together. Real quickly in closing, a man, Pastor David Fisher, wrote this. He said, I once served on the board of a Christian college for several years. And during that time, the government of Swaziland in Africa wanted to recruit Christian school teachers to come to their country and help them set up a Christian school system in their country. And Swaziland is a monarchy. In other words, they have a king, and this was what the king of Swaziland wanted. He wanted to set up a Christian school system. So Swaziland's ambassador to the United Nations, a man named Nelson Malinga, came to the college where Pastor David Fisher was serving 
to interview students looking for Christian school teachers. Pastor Fisher said, I was privileged along with another board member to serve as the ambassador's host for a couple of days. And he said it was an eye-opening experience. He said, my lifetime in a democracy had not prepared me for the power of a monarchy. He said, I'd never before met a government official, and I discovered that the ambassadors are a very special type of government official. Ambassadors of a king are even more unusual. The first thing he said I noticed was Mr. Malinga's sense of dignity. He said it was quickly apparent that he was the personal representative of the king. In other words, his words stood for the king. He was acting on behalf of the king. And it was to be as if the king was there himself. From his behavior, he said it was clear that he was well aware that he spoke for the king. He was quick to say things like, well, the king says, and he would go on. If anyone had ever questioned his authority or his word, he could simply have replied, call the king. Because the ambassador spoke for the king, a certain authority accompanied everything he did and everything he said. At the same time, however, the ambassador was quite reserved. He was a dignified man. At all times, he deferred to the king from whom his confidence and power came. In other words, he was aware that he didn't have his own uh, authority, his own power, but it was a power and authority that derived from a higher source, from a higher position. For neither the message he spoke nor the mission he was on were his own. He was there to bring the message and the mission of his king. At night, Pastor Fisher said when the meetings were over and we went back to the hotel, Mr. Malinga had one last task. He would call home to talk to the king. He had known the king all his life and represented a king that he both loved and respected. And Pastor Fisher said, I think that much of the ambassador's dignity and quiet sense of authority came not just from his eye office, but also from his relationship with the king. He knew what the king thought and desired, and he lived to make the king's wishes come to pass wherever he was. Friends, Jesus came to earth to do the same thing for his father that Mr. Malinga did for the king of Swaziland. And now, friends, you and I are in the position of the king's ambassadors. We dwell in the human space, and we are called to bring God's kingdom to reality in this space where we live. Just as Jesus taught the disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be ambassadors, agents of God's kingdom bringing the God space together with the human space and inviting the rest of the world to come and share that space with us. Amen. Let's